0: Hi, Grizz. Hey, Lila. How are you doing? Um, I'm actually, I just came back from vacation and I am still recovering from speed reading normal people (laughs) and then watching all 12 episodes on Hulu. So when you say came back from vacation, you mean watching TV? (laughs) I mean, where could I go? I literally just rolled into my living room and spent a lot of time with Connell and Marianne and Connell's neck chain, actually, which has really become a phenomenon.
1: It has. Connell's Neck Chain, um, so the protagonist, one of the protagonists of Normal People, um, it has its own Instagram account, Connell's Chain, if people are interested. <laughs> and there are also two think pieces that you can read about it, as I did, on The Cut and on Vice. Um, yeah. When I finished Normal People, I felt like it left a, a big hole in my life. So I've just been sort of trawling the internet for any content I can get my hands on. And it is often about Connell's Necklace. <laughs>
0: Yeah, seriously, never have we been so collectively attracted to a man and his necklace. So Lila, why are we really here? And well, we're really, I mean, we're really here because we're obviously not the only ones who have been thinking and talking about normal people nonstop since the TV adaptation came out last week. Mm -hmm. It's been a complete phenomenon. And we remembered that we have a very relevant gem to contribute to the greater cultural conversation, which is your interview with the author of the novel, Sally Rooney, talking about normal people.
1: Yeah, back in September 2018. Um, And Mm -hmm. so today we're going to be digging into our archive to bring you that interview as a special bonus episode. Um, And I spoke to Sally just before Normal People came out in the UK. It's funny to think about that now. 18 months isn't that long ago. But in terms of her profile, it is quite a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was just a fan of Culture Call in those days, and I was listening to it in my Mm -hmm. kitchen when I was cooking dinner and thinking, wow, this sounds so good. And I texted you like, which one of these books should I read? Should (laughs) I read her first book, Conversations with Friends, or should I read Normal People? And you said... They're both great. You should read Conversations with Friends first because it was the first, but Mm -hmm. Normal People is better. (laughs) I stick to that advice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's set the scene first of what Normal People is about for the people listening, thinking, oh, cool, a bonus episode, and then realizing that um, they have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah.
1: So if you have been living in a hole for the past uh, week or two (laughs) weeks, uh, Normal People... We won't
0: offend you, but...
1: (laughs) Normal People is a best-selling novel, uh, now also a (laughs) 12-part TV series on BBC iPlayer and on Hulu, if you're in the States or elsewhere, and it's based around a very intense relationship between two young people, Connell and Marianne. Um, Connell comes from this working-class family with a very kind of warm, supportive mother. Marianne, on the other hand, comes from a wealthy family with a very cold mother and an abusive brother. That makes it sound simplistic. It's really anything but simplistic. It's incredibly nuanced. And as I said, incredibly intense.
0: Right. It's not really like just a <laughs> like Romeo and Juliet's <laughs> situation. No, um, although it has
1: the kind of tragic feel of that at points, don't you think? It does.
0: Yeah, it totally does. And it's, it is like a portrait of a relationship over time. Um, Mm. So it's a nice, interesting plot. And for a show and for a book, I found it interesting. Like, it doesn't really seem to have one natural climax, but it has, like, a number of them, which makes it feel more like life, you know? Like, we've dropped in on them and lived with them and then left, but they're still around living their lives wherever they are. I really feel that way about them. Something about it is very human and kind of devastating. Yes, yeah. So it's been interesting that it's dropped now during the lockdown, and we've been thinking about, like, why is it resonating so hard? And I think it just feels so risque to be in on their intimacy. Like their intimacy is very loaded and pure um and intense Mm. and it's like you're reading their diary or something I mean especially at a time where we're actually not allowed to physically touch people yeah (laughs) or at least anyone other than the people that we've basically been like legally authorized to touch which we're probably completely (laughs) sick of by now it's all very unsexy and so we have this unrequited romance and maybe that's what the people want
1: yeah I think that is definitely what the people want I think you put your finger on it
0: I was laughing with a friend that when Connell looks across the room at Marianne, it feels like my boyfriend is looking across the room at me, to which she responded, we are truly all dating Connell and Marianne.
1: Yes. I mean, even I am dating Connell and Marianne, and I am actually married. So um, there you go. (laughs) And I think the other thing is that actually we have been kind of starved for really good television during the lockdown. I think this is the first lockdown series to come along that's been excellent. There's been lots of fine things on Netflix or kind of slightly blah things. But this is the first brilliant thing that you can really get stuck into.
0: Exactly. I mean, the last thing that really like touched a nerve was Tiger King.
1: No, that should not even be compared to this.
0: (laughs) This is as gripping as Tiger King, but better for the world and for your brain. Yeah, but good. (laughs) How about that? Yeah. <laughs> but good. So, Chris, can you now bring us back to that moment of interviewing Sally? It was 2018. Her first book, Conversations with Friends, it was popular, but it wasn't. Um, she wasn't at the pinnacle of her mm. notoriety. So yeah. bring us back there.
1: Yeah. So we need to rewind in time to September 2018. Like I said, and there was definitely hype around normal people because of the success of Conversations with Friends, which was kind of a word of mouth hit. Mm. She was only 27 when I spoke to her. And so she was even younger when she'd published Conversations with Friends a couple of years before. And both of these two books are about kind of growing up in, in present-day Ireland. They're both about these very complex relationships. They're about kind of sex and how people use it and how people express themselves through it and about mm-hmm. power dynamics. I think the power dynamic thing is something that Sally Rooney is really good at. At the point when I spoke to her, um, the acclaim that followed... Quite swiftly afterwards, hadn't happened. You know, quite soon after I spoke to her, she topped all the bestseller lists that year. She won numerous prizes. There was huge buzz when Normal People was published in the US the following spring. So it was like the calm before
0: the storm. Yeah, you know, I did this. I did this in a weird way where I watched the first episode of Normal People and then immediately realized that I wanted to read the book, stopped watching the show, mm. whipped through the book in a day, and then <laughs> went back to the show. And so they felt so similar to me. I mean, like, I just felt like I was reading the transcript, like it was hard for me to distinguish mm. how different the book was or what the what the show was leaving out.
1: I think you're right that the TV series is, is remarkably similar in lots of ways. And Sally Rooney was one of the people who adapted it. Um, So, you know, it kind of, it sounds like Sally Rooney, the dialogue. But at the same time, I think that the book is a bit darker. I mean, I think the book is quite a lot Mm. darker. There's more about self-harm and disordered eating. It's more political in a sense. I mean, Sally Rooney has spoken quite openly about her Marxist beliefs. And I think Mm -hmm. they're really embedded in... The beliefs of the characters in both of her books. And you wouldn't get that from watching the TV show necessarily. Not that that means the TV show is a lesser thing, but they are slightly different beasts, I think. Um, and right. listening back to the interview with Sally, you know, it reminded me that the book is actually quite different. You know, even if you're someone who's just binged the TV series um, and you feel like you've mm. had quite a lot of normal people in your life, I think if you go and read the book now, it will seem a bit different in a quite refreshing way.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you about before we get started is that Sally talks a little about the political environment in Ireland uh, when the book was released. Mm. Um, You guys call it the post-Celtic tiger boom. And um, (laughs) I had to Google that afterwards. I mean, for those of us who live a little further afield from Ireland, what exactly is that time? What does that mean? Mm. So I guess the
1: Celtic tiger years were... um, this economic boom um, in the mid 2000s, maybe even early 2000s. I remember going mm-hmm. to Dublin in about 2006 and the skyline was just completely full of cranes. There was so much building work going on. Wow. Um, there was a sense of prosperity and kind of money sloshing around. And this is in a country that hasn't historically been, you know, really wealthy. Right. And so when the recession came in 2008, Ireland was hit really, really hard. And I think what Sally Rooney is interested in is kind of the generation that comes of age after that happened and the, the things that they have in their mind because of what
0: they've seen. And those are the characters in Normal People. Yeah, exactly. Right. Cool. Got it. Okay. <laughs> are you excited to re-listen to your interview? Um, Lila, I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> I really hate going back
1: to my previous work. I don't know if you find this as well. However, Sally Rooney is special. Um, Mm -hmm. She is so sharp and she's so quick. She's actually a former European champion debater, which... That's um, so interesting. Yeah, which I think comes across when you meet her, actually. Um, And talking to her is kind of
0: invigorating. Like, she's a great conversationalist. She's fast, too. I thought my speed was fast forwarded a little bit, like (laughs) (laughs) 1.1 (laughs) times. But that's just her. Yeah,
1: she is like that. I mean, she's a very impressive person you know, it was a privilege not just to speak to her, but to speak to her at that time when she was on the cusp of kind of big time fame. You know, it feels a bit like Mm. a a time capsule in that sense.
0: Cool. Well, we're excited to bring this to everybody. Um, We've been full of bonus episodes (laughs) this month. So uh, enjoy it and let's get into it.
1: Sally, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So Normal People is your second book, which has followed quite swiftly from conversations with friends. Did you approach it differently this time around?
2: Not really. Well, I tried not to because I had had already started writing the book that would later become Normal People, though the title came very late on in the process. By the time I actually so, sort of sold conversations with friends, I already was working on on normal people, following swiftly on the heels, as you say. And um, so for that reason, I already had the basic bones of the book. Well, really, I had the two central characters by the time conversations with friends became a thing. So, uh, so in that sense, I didn't really, I couldn't really approach it all that differently because the concept pre-existed all the stuff that went on around the first novel. And I tried to maintain as much as I could that sense of being slightly insulated from the outside world while while working on it because I just think it was <clears throat> healthier for me I think yeah
1: I mean it would have been overwhelming considering the reception the conversations with friends had I imagined you could get that sort of difficult second album feeling
2: yeah you definitely could <laughs> um, and at times I'm sure I did like it's impossible to insulate yourself completely when there's the level of like interest and fuss that there was around the first book but I did try my best and hopefully succeeded to some extent and I think it definitely helped that I had been in the world of the second book before that sort of mm. stuff kicked off. yeah. Mm.
1: And these two worlds, they're quite similar in a sense. I mean, thinking about the, the central characters, they're all relatively young. They're Irish. The, there's lots of concern around things like education, class, money, entitlement or the lack of entitlement. Were you conscious of writing in a kind of post-Celtic tiger boom time?
2: It would be impossible for me to write in any other time yeah. because I started college in 2009. So, really, just as the crash was unfolding and it was becoming clear. Just to what extent the Irish economy had been completely built on sand. And seeing the assumptions about how the market worked in Ireland and also globally just crumble completely. I mean, I couldn't just like go back, you know, mm. before that, um, especially because that was my, you know, I was, that was when I was 18, 19, 20. And do you um, think
1: something sort of changed
2: psychically? Was there a shift in the way people were relating to ideas around money and class? For me, it was definitely a sense that preconceived notions about the economy were shown, you know, from my perspective to be pretty much false and then it was like uh, oh so what else is a lie (laughs) and it it did sort of shift my thinking in the sense that I think I probably became more critical of sort of readily accepted like commonplace truths about society and and about the human condition or humankind thinking a bit more skeptically about those ideas certainly informed who I was at that age and then I'm writing about characters who are at that age you know that obviously goes into the book I think yeah
1: it's interesting to me that there's not much Catholicism in the book. Do you feel that it's something that's kind of increasingly irrelevant to sort of educated Irish millennials?
2: Yeah, and I mean, I don't I don't even think you need the qualifier educated there. I don't think that the Catholic Church has a very important social presence among Irish people of my generation. The main presence of the Catholic Church in Irish life is an institutional presence. So like hospitals are owned by the church, schools are owned and run by the church. There hasn't been in any sense a clean break with the, with the Catholic past. But in terms of cultural norms and stuff, I just don't see that. It's not an Ireland that I recognise. I mean, I grew up in Castlebar in the west of Ireland and I didn't recognise it there either in a relatively small town in County Mayo, traditionally quite a conservative county. People I went to school with are exactly the same as people I went to college with. All just kind of normal, um, and I didn't. I don't recognise that that Ireland that's structured by those kind of repressive social Catholic teaching. Yeah.
1: So there has been a move away from a kind of older Irish literature for which Catholicism was a huge theme. It's interesting that in this kind of past literature that ideas of guilt and and shame and things might have been associated with religion, whereas in particularly in normal people, there's a kind of bodily theme there's there's kind of uh, sadomasochistic sex mm-hmm. there's self-harm there's a lot of enacting psychological feelings upon the body and i wonder are sort of pleasure and pain are those things close together do you think
2: that's certainly something that i'm interested in writing about i think it was there a little bit in in the first book and i think it's definitely there again maybe more so in the second one and i think some of it has to do with gender like i'm obviously interested in writing about women's experiences and i think as a young woman, coming to terms with your sexuality can be quite a fraught process and has been for the characters that I've written about anyway. And trying to observe the extent to which sexual pleasure is sort of a legitimate aim for young women and what kind of baggage comes with that when maybe in the specific cases of the characters that I've been writing about, there may be some sort of sense of, in the case of Marianne, I think trauma, that alters fundamentally her self-conception as a person. So not trying to make any like very direct or simplistic link between her experiences of trauma and her sexual identity, but just trying to be sensitive to how those things might flow back and forth between one another. And that's certainly something that I'm interested in observing. But I don't have any grand theory about how it works. I'm just trying to sort of do justice to it in the in however the novel plays out.
1: Mm, it's interesting that for Marianne, the, the desire to be sort of sexually dominated and subjugated even she's sort of reconciling that with the fact that she's also extremely individual and actually doesn't care what people think more than these other young characters. Mm. Do you think that there's something about kind of contemporary feminism that is coming to terms with... Ideas around domination and those two things coexisting.
2: Um, I guess like something I'm very interested in that runs through both the novels. um, And that's probably one of the primary themes of of everything that I've written is the relationship between um, love and power relations and particularly sexuality and power relations. So trying to observe how, you know, fundamentally sometimes sexual relationships can be about exchanges of power and in Marianne's case that's quite an extreme exchange of power Um, it's like a dramatized or almost allegorical exchange of power where you know she is the subjugated party and somebody else is the dominating party but it doesn't have to be that um extreme or that sort of obvious in order for it to be there and I think in her relationship with Connell the book's other protagonist um that's there too. You know, there is a power exchange happening between them, which is part of their sexual relationship. And they kind of both in some ways eroticize the power disparity between them.
1: Yeah, one of the fascinating things about normal people is the way that the power shifts between either person. You never feel that one person has 100 percent of it, but it seems like it's um, the share of it is constantly changing. And it's interesting that in school, Marianne is kind of socially a bit of a pariah. She's having a hard time. Connell, at least on the outside, seems to be having a pretty good time of school. How did you find school? Um, Were you Marianne
2: or were you Connell? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably somewhere between the two, which... Is probably most most people are. you know Hiding in the library? No, I was not like, you know and Marianne arguably is bullied in school, which I was not. Um, but I also was not like you know, incredibly charming and beloved by all. I was just, <laughs> you know, regular. Did you enjoy school? No, I didn't enjoy school at all. And the reason is it had nothing to do with the social aspects of school. It was the repressive atmosphere, the school environment itself and sort of feeling that I was just constantly being ordered around at the whims of a an institutional power which I fundamentally didn't really recognise as legitimate or consent to in any way. It was like, why? Why am I listening to these people? Like, they tell me that they're teachers. Therefore, I'm expected to listen to whatever they tell me and do whatever they say and just sort of unquestionably obey their every whim. And I just it didn't make sense to me. I just I fundamentally did not understand why I was expected to do that. So I found it really degrading. Like I have to dress up in like a costume and go (laughs) go to this big building every day where people just order me around all the time. I would never do it again. I wasn't caught in the grip of a very oppressive social setting like Conal and Marianne. Both are in very different ways. Socially, my school is actually a very nice place to be. Yeah.
1: People have written about you a lot and sometimes in terms of a sort of Irish, a contemporary Irish tradition of writing. And then also in other traditions, including a sort of um, millennial, slightly confessional women's writing tradition with you know figures like Lena Dunham with girls and Sheila Hetty. Do you have any sense of being connected to other writers in a tradition?
2: It's, it would be very disingenuous to say no, because it's impossible to write a, a novel that isn't in conversations with other novels, I think. Like the novel form is what it is. And by engaging in it, you are necessarily engaging with other novels. You can't write like the neutral novel. <laughs> um, there's definitely a sense that I'm trying to come to terms with what the novel is. And that necessitates coming to terms with particular traditions and sort of threads running through the development of the novel. And are um, there any particular traditions and threads? that you feel you're speaking to or influenced by? Yeah, well, I mean, influenced by, certainly, I think the 19th century novel, really, its formal structure and its sense of, like the engines at the heart of those novels really, um, for me, are like, that's how you do a novel. And I feel their influence very strongly when I'm writing But then I also think there are contemporary writers who, when I read their work, I feel like, oh, that's what I want to be doing, which doesn't mean that I'm succeeding in doing it. (laughs) But definitely Sheila Hetty would be one of those writers. Um, I remember reading Miranda July's first collection of stories. I think I was still in school then and feeling like, oh, it's possible to write like this. It's possible to do this kind of thing. So there are always, you know, there are always new Writers coming out doing interesting things that push me in, in new directions. And then there's also the sort of history of English literature side of things, which is trying to think about the novel as a form and trying to understand its its limits and also its, its sort of strengths and its capacities and what it can do. It's interesting that some of
1: these more recent female writers, they're often talked about in terms of autobiography or memoir. And in certain ways, there seems to be a kind of confessional element of that. Is that a frustrating thing to be asked whether your work is autobiographical or if there's an element of that in it?
2: I mean, it's not frustrating. I just, I guess I don't, um, I don't really know what the question means because it's like, well, the person asking it doesn't know me usually. So then they can't really know anything. I don't know what the substance of the question is. Like, I suppose it's a question about process.
1: And it seems to be a question that's asked specifically to women writers.
2: Yeah, I think women probably do hear it more. I've heard that women hear it more and obviously having never been a male writer, I have nothing to compare <laughs> it to, but I've, he- I've heard that women do hear it more. I mean, maybe there is something different about the fiction that women are writing now and that's what's necessitating the question or that's what's triggering the question. Or maybe it's just that there's a particular attitude toward women writers and that's what's triggering the question. I honestly don't know. I just, I guess I find the question a bit like, what does it tell you? If I say yes or no, what does it tell you? I mean, I, I don't think that you gain any good, interesting or critical information about the book from knowing that. I mean, maybe the question is more substantial than it appears to me on first glance. In a,
1: in a way it's um it's the interviewer asking tell me a bit more about your life. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of veiled way of asking for some biography.
2: Yeah. I suppose that's and it's also kind of I've wondered whether it's sort of a so did all this stuff just happen to you then? You didn't actually make it up, did you? Which is <laughs> I mean, I think that's a kind of a misunderstanding of what the work of writing fiction involves to think that like if something's happened to you that it involves like a little bit less creativity to write about it than if that you had to make it up. They're both exactly the same thing. You're just sitting with your laptop or a piece of paper putting words in a particular order whether they're based on stuff that's happened to you or they're not. I don't think it makes much difference to the creative process. Maybe people think, you know, men write great works of imagination and women just write about their own sort of personal lives. And and maybe people do think that. I obviously don't think that that's true, either in my case or in the case of most women writers.
1: The internet for a while was seen as kind of being problematic for fiction writers. You know, so many traditional plots kind of hang on people not being able to WhatsApp each other or not being able to just instantly Google something. But the internet in your books... It feels like it's sort of woven into It's just another platform for conversation. When you were writing them, do you think about how am I going to deal with this thing?
2: Um, no, I, I didn't really. I think um, I've actually found the internet quite useful in writing books because it makes sense for the characters to express themselves that way and get to know each other that way. For me it's been like a it's been useful and it's also been interesting because I'm interested in words and how people communicate and and the differences sometimes subtle and sometimes not of how people use language in a written form like email or instant messaging and how they use it in face-to-face dialogue. It's been actually interesting for me to try and think through those things, but obviously I don't think of the internet as like a <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, because like As I other. grew up on the internet, mm. yeah. Mm. So I don't like I, don't, I barely remember a time before internet. It doesn't feel to me like it's separate from the world of the of the characters. It's very much in that world, and so having that perspective probably maybe probably helps me to to write about it a bit more smoothly. But having said that, I I, I haven't really read any bad examples of internet writing. I've been told that they're out there, but I haven't really encountered them. I I generally like reading novels where online textuality is included in the body of the novel in some way.
1: Well, I think it also might feel like an affectation to set a novel now and remove all of that stuff because it is so much the fabric of our lives it it would perhaps be odd not to have it there
2: yeah definitely and I think the question is just like how do you elevate that something that feels so mundane like you say it's so part of the fabric of our lives and make it something literary like not make it sort of boring and ugly for the reader to have to go through but then you don't want to heighten it so that it's unrecognisable either I mean you still want it to be recognisable as real life but then that's just a microcosm of the whole thing of writing a novel you know you want to make it recognisable but not make it really boring (laughs) That's sort of the whole job, yeah.
1: So I read that you were uh, the number one student debater in Europe. Did did that help your writing?
2: Yeah, I've been asked that question a Mm. bit. I have to say, I don't think it did. No. Um, (laughs) I just can't really see any connection between the two things. Well, I
1: can though, because the dialogue is, these are very argumentative conversations that turn on sort of winning points to some extent. Not not all the conversations, but some of them.
2: But I probably went into debating because that interested me. You know, like I probably had that pre-existing interest. I don't think I was like... I used to be a very non-aggressive laid back person and then I went into debating and became really belligerent like I think I probably always was like that and then that was what attracted me to debating and then that was you know that, and that's the same tendency that's now visible in the, in the novels that they're quite sort of spiky people that they're sort of conflict oriented that they mm. like having things out verbally and, um, and you know the, in, in certain situations that's the kind of person I am also so I think those are the tendencies that you're seeing play out in the novel and those are also the tendencies that led me to spend so much of my free time when I was a student going to debating competitions. But I don't think that the that the debating actually really um, helped me very much in that, in that narrow respect. No, I don't think so. Is it true that you write very fast? I do write very fast, yeah. I do write very fast, but I also delete a lot. In fact, the majority of what I write ends up getting deleted. So, I mean, I definitely write quickly, very intensely, working a lot of hours a, a day and getting very in my head about uh, the characters and wanting to sort of follow them everywhere. But... Most of the stuff that I end up writing in that state of mind does not end up working out. Are
1: you happiest when you're in that state of mind when you're writing?
2: Yeah, I definitely am. Even though it's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, even though it's so, so frustrating, I'm definitely happiest. Um, because I feel like I have something, you know, I have like a secret world that I can kind of retreat to and spend time in in my head. So I don't get, you can't get bored. Like you, you definitely can't get bored if you're trying to figure out what to do next in a book that you're writing because it's always sort of there on your mind but it also means that just navigating the world walking through a city or you know you're kind of thinking about your characters doing that and what and what they would perceive and how it would be different for them so there's a kind of usefulness to all your days then because um you can put them somewhere hopefully into the book Um so yeah for that reason I definitely think I am happiest when I'm when I'm working on something new do you read reviews I do read reviews. Yeah, I do read reviews. Um, Do you find them
1: helpful or annoying?
2: Yeah, I I read reviews. I don't read other coverage. So I don't read coverage about me or interviews with myself or anything. I think that would just be, (laughs) that would be too weird. But I do read reviews of the book. For me, I think it's important to just be open to hearing honest criticism. First of all, people might point out things that you're like, oh, that's actually, that's actually true. You know, I could have done that better or... um, It's a good way of reminding yourself that the book doesn't belong to you anymore. You know, it's in the world now and people can kind of think what they want about it and say things about it that you think are, you know, that you think are wrong or that you think are like very insightful, very thoughtful. But yeah, I think it's important for me because otherwise I think I'd, I'd start believing that the book actually was still mine so it's good to accept that you're not actually the oracle on your own work you just have to let it go and let people say what they will about it and obviously I should add my experiences with both books I've been extremely lucky the critics have been extremely kind to me um, arguably too kind I think but I still think it's important to be for me anyway to be open yeah
1: mm. so you're 27 is that right that's right yeah you've published two very acclaimed books thank you
2: um, in two years what's what's next <laughs> can you say yeah I mean I can say because I don't know I don't know what's next yeah I mean I'm, as I said I'm, I'm editing the, the Stinging Fly Literary Journal in Dublin that's kind of the day job like that's um, and it's great and it's a lot of work and it keeps me focused and then hopefully I'll write I'll write something new I don't know when it will be or what it will be it could be very different from the two that I've already done or it could be like very similar again who knows <laughs> who knows I don't know Sally thank you so much for thank you asked. so much for having me thank <laughs> you um, I wondered if you might sign
0: my books. That's very fine. Delighted to. Sorry. No, I would be <laughs>
2: delighted to.
0: That's all for this week. We hope you liked the bonus episode. Um, as usual, you can check out our show notes for some relevant think pieces and links. <laughs>
1: think pieces about O'Connell's neck, chain. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms. They're good, I promise. Yes, and if you like the TV series and you haven't read the book, then we would recommend it. And you may also be interested in the work of the co-writer of the TV series, Alice Birch, who's a playwright, um, a very experimental playwright whose work I really like. And she also did the screenplay for the film Lady Macbeth.
0: We will both be back with a full episode, as usual, next Friday. Our guest will be the playwright Jeremy O'Harris, who wrote the brilliant and brilliantly provocative Slave Play on Broadway. Um, Grizz spoke to him in London just before the lockdown began, and we're excited to finally bring it to you.
1: As always, we love hearing from you. Um, you can tell us what you're reading, what you're watching and listening to by filling out our short form at ft.com slash culturecallout. Uh, we'll we will love that, the form. We love the form, and we'll, we'll put the link in <laughs> our show notes as ever. Or you can record a short voice note on your phone, and you can email it to us at ft.com. And as ever, you can tweet us at ft call, and you can find us on Instagram at Griselda brown and at Lila Rapp.
0: If you like the show, the two best ways you can help us out are to share it with your friends. That is always greatly appreciated and the best way for it to grow and to leave a star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that and we appreciate you.
1: We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown.
0: Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood and our music is composed by Fatim.